Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? In this episode, we're going to revisit a conversation because I recently had the opportunity to see a couple very healthy trees in person. I'm talking about the Willemi pine, or as some may call it, a pinosaur. It was thought to be an extinct species known only from the fossil record until a grove was discovered in 1994. However, it's bittersweet because there are a lot of challenges facing this tiny grove, and there's a lot of efforts being done to ensure that this species has a future. This conversation was had back in 2018 with Dr. Heidi Zimmer, who has the distinct honor of working with this species, and I just want to say since that time, the only known grove of naturally growing trees was spared from those awful bushfires that afflicted Australia a few years back. And of course, work is always ongoing, but I wanted to bring this conversation back out of the coffers because it's a species that's on my mind, and it's a species that could always use more attention and celebration. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Heidi Zimmer. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Heidi Zimmer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, well, I am a research scientist with New South Wales Government Office of Environment and Heritage, and that is actually down under in Australia, I guess. Um, I'm not sure how often you have people on your podcast from Australia. So, yeah, I, um, I'm a research scientist, and my speciality is rare and threatened species, and I'm lucky enough to get to work on rare and threatened plants a lot of the time in, in our state of New South Wales, which is the one on the eastern side about midway up. Yeah, so that's what I do. Awesome. There's a lot yeah. to talk about with that. I mean, has it always been about plants with you or has plants kind of uh, came about this later, fell into it? How did you kind of circle the drain to conserving plants? Well, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I think it probably did start out going camping as a young kid with my family and my dad was a bit of a nerd, so he always had a plant <laughs> with a car and and so we would always be identifying things and, you know, saying what the Latin names were, and I got into it. And then at uni, for some reason, everyone was gravitating towards the animals, but there were some really awesome plant projects to do. And there was a plant project um, which could take you to Thailand, and I was like, heck, you know, I'm going to Thailand to work on plants. <laughs> like the one about platypus and koalas, that's got like 100 applicants, but no one wants to go <laughs> and work on plants. So, yeah, at the um, at the end of my undergraduate degree at Monash University, I did a my honours project on the pine species in northern Thailand. And actually, I looked at their tree rings and looked for climate signals in their tree rings. And that worked out super well because they have really clear tree rings. And so, yeah, after that, it was just me and plants here on in. <laughs> what an awesome introduction. A uh, few people get to go, hey, botany is kind of cool, and then end up in Thailand. That's very different. Although I guess most of us would look at Australia as something wild and exotic. And it is still wild and exotic, and it's and it's a big country, and there there is still a lot to do in Australia. And so I guess um, I was super lucky when, through that same supervisor, um, then at the University of Melbourne, Patrick Baker, he got back to me after my honours and said, would I be interested in doing a PhD on the Wallamai Pine? And like, I'd read books about the Wallamai pine. I don't know whether you've got the same books over there in the States, but 
like the panda of the <laughs> world. And I just sent back this email to him with like, yes, in capital letters and some explanation marks that went over about nine lines. <laughs> I, didn't to, I didn't need to know what the project was about. I was, I was all in. That is so cool. What's a great thing to be in the right place of mind to appreciate, right? Because like you said, for those of us that know what the Willamai Pine is, it really is kind of like the panda. It's, I remember even here in the States, uh, some of the press during the early days about how exciting this was and just, you know, everyone volleying the living fossil that gets thrown around a lot. But okay, this is very special to those of us, again, who know about it. What is the Willamai Pine and why do so many of us in the botanical realm make us think about it? Well, um, where do we start? So I guess, so the Wallamai Pine, it was discovered in 1994. So I was in grade four at primary school and I can kind of remember it too. And it only exists in one canyon in the Blue Mountains, which are near Sydney. And this guy was walking through these canyons. And when I say walk, well, you kind of, you know, take a rope and, and <laughs> you up your hands. Um, he was an off-duty ranger. His name was David Noble. And he was walking along and he found something that looked a little bit different. Um, and he picked up a, a twig and he put it in his backpack and he took it back to the office, forgot about it for a few days, showed it to some of his friends and they said, oh, is this from like a fern or a shrub? And he said, no, it's from a 40-meter tall tree. <laughs> and it was then that they knew that they were onto something pretty special. And so within a couple of years, the Wallamite pine was described as a new species in a new genus in the family Araucariaceae. And yeah, it was like the botanical find of the century because who finds a 40 meter tall tree, a new species <laughs> within a couple of hundred k's of Australia's most populous city? You know, it, it, it was huge. And I guess the other cool thing was is that um, the Wallamai pine matched with some of the fossils that we already did know about. <laughs> and so that that's how it um, got the sort of the dinosaur or pinosaur name um, because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was kind of already known from the fossil record. So it or its ancestor probably evolved about 200 million years ago and then its uh, fossil record including pollen just goes down and down and down until about two million years ago and then yeah it's now just in this one little canyon system in the blue mountains so yeah it was it was huge like it was it made the front page of the local papers here you know David Attenborough got on board it was just like <laughs> yeah you know it was it, it was the rock star of the plant world. So, yeah, to, to have the opportunity to get anywhere near, you know, working on it or talking to people who had worked on it, it's like the botanist's dream, you know? Yeah, that I got goosebumps as you were talking about that. But it sounds like the key to the secrecy of this 40-meter-tall tree, something that had only really been known from the fossil record and, and looked even in the fossil record like it was probably gone for good, it sounds like where they're found, these canyons are probably pretty remote locations, and that's what protected them in secrecy yeah. for so long. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like you just go for a walk to your local milk bar and find them. You know, they are kind of in the middle of nowhere. Not many people go there. It's a wilderness area. There aren't that many tracks. There's, I think, in Wallamai National Park, there's about 500 canyons or something like that so yeah um i guess i often think it's it's kind of weird because a lot of our rare plants they're rare because of some form of human impact like habitat destruction or something like that 
whereas these the fossils kind of decrease in the fossil record big time as Australia kind of got more arid and increased uh, and fires increased sort of through geological time. So, yeah, it's kind of what you call a, a naturally rare species, I guess. Mm, something biologically special just because it survived, in, again, in these tucked away little corners. But now this is a gymnosperm, correct? And you, you mentioned the family, but for those of us living in temperate areas that are used to pines and spruces, firs, larches, these are a little bit different kinds of conifers than most people are, are looking at. Most yeah, so, I don't know. Do you have Araucariaceae in the northern hemisphere at all? Like, I hesitate to say no for sure, but I'm gonna say it, if they do occur, they're either planted or not common. Yeah, because you know a lot of people might know the monkey puzzle pine mm. or Norfolk Island pine. They often they stand out in botanic gardens because of their weird sort of geometric shapes. The centre of diversity for Araucariaceae is actually an island off Australia called New Caledonia. Hmm. So yeah, they're they're a pretty a pretty weird gymnosperm family. And while my pine is in its own sort of genus, Willemia, but Araucariaceae are usually emergent trees within rainforest. You know, you very rarely would see a complete sort of stand of them. Like I guess you get with your um, northern hemisphere gymnosperms. They're more likely to be emergent trees in the, in the rainforest yeah so I hope that kind of gives people a bit of an idea of what they look like yeah it's always tough to sum up a whole family of plants you know there's not like there's a million exceptions to every rule you could possibly <laughs> yeah yeah um and and then i was i i guess the other thing is so if you ever see a wallamai pine in your local botanic gardens there will usually be sort of this straight up and down tree that looks just like a pine tree but in the wild, the Wallamai pines are actually multi-stemmed. And that's, in Australia, I would say it's like a mallee or a snow gum. But I don't know whether you've got some really good examples of multi-stemmed things over there. Which means that, like, Wallamai pines aren't a straight up and down, like, neat-looking Christmas tree. They're a complete bloody mess, sort of, <laughs> up to 100 stems. And so when we say there are fewer than 100 Wallamai pines left in the wild, people say, well, you think that you'd know specifically how many individuals you have. And we don't because they're all tangled within one another with their multiple stems. So, um, yeah, they kind of exist in this kind of grove of tangled multi-stemness. Yeah. How strange. And and again, tucked away in this one spot, it's not that their habitat had been destroyed. It's it's gradual climate change over millennia that have caused this yeah. retraction to some extent. You know, you can point to a lot of fingers in ecology, but nonetheless, that small range makes them quite vulnerable, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. And so one of the first things that happened when it was discovered and, and described was that they, they got it listed as critically endangered sort of straight up and... So according to your IUCN guidelines, the fact of its small distribution, yeah, pretty much sent it straight to being critically endangered. So it's sort of got the highest level of protection. And it's also awesome that it was already within this national park yeah. wilderness. Yeah, it's got it's got the highest levels of protection because of its rarity. Hmm. So as an oddball, something tucked away like it is, does it have a bizarre ecology? You already mentioned that it doesn't kind of conform to what we'd expect out of a conifer. It's already kind of weird in appearance. Are there things about it that really stand out to you as a, as a plant lover that make it seem even more special from an ecological standpoint? Well, yes and no. I guess the first thing is that 
because I'm only relatively new to it, only having worked on it since about 2011, there are people who know all those canyons in the Blue Mountains, and the canyon that the Wild My Pine exists in is very similar to all the other ones. Mm. It's characterized by warm temperate rainforest, by the angiosperms that are in there, and the only different thing is that the Wild My Pine happens to be in that canyon. That's the only different thing. And so I guess it, a question that I was told not to ask during my PhD because I would never answer it is why is it only in this canyon? And we we don't know. And we guess, I, I you know, if I was to speculate, I'd say it's probably, you know, just random disturbances through time that have led, led it to be there. But actually the, the reason why my PhD started was that there was some concern looking at the stand in in the wild that there were plenty of big trees sort of from 20 to 40 metres and then plenty of little things um, on the ground level, sort of sub 30 centimetres, but very few middle-sized trees in between. And, and National Parks was a bit concerned maybe it was having problems with recruitment. Mm. And so in the same way... You know, I kind of use the analogy if you went to a, a small town and you found all old people and, and babies <laughs> and sort of no one in between, you start to think, why aren't those babies growing up? <laughs> um, um, but you, a quick literature review is what you usually do or a detailed literature review is what you do at the start of your PhD. And, and I found out that in terms of rainforest species, it's not that unusual, right? You've got your overstory of mature stuff and then you've got your seedlings that are just waiting around for a canopy gap. They're suppressed and then they'll sort of shoot up when a canopy gap is opened and, and light and resources are increased. And so I guess I kind of tried to hose down the concern a little bit, sort of saying we've only really known about this species since 1994 as far as we know, we haven't lost any mature ones since then. There's been no mortality. And so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised if there hasn't been any recruitment in that period either. So that was a key finding of my PhD. And it was more <laughs> that it conformed to a typical rainforest species rather than having any reason to be alarmed about it. But yeah, uh, yeah that's one thing. I guess another thing is... Um, some work that I didn't do before my PhD was on the seed viability of the Wallamai pine. And so the seed viability was one of the first things that they tested and they found only about 10% of the seeds are, are viable, which is, um, it's low, right? But yeah. in this family, it's extremely variable. There are other species in the Araucariaceae which have really low and there's other ones that have quite high. So there's that. And the other interesting thing in, the, in terms of early work that was done was that they tested for um, the genetic diversity across mature individuals. And they they didn't say that there was no genetic diversity, but they basically said that they couldn't detect any genetic diversity. Now, that was some time ago, and that work, genetic work, was done again recently um, by Greenfield and others, and they have been able to detect using um, whole chloroplast sequencing some small amount of genetic variation, but it's still... It's it's tiny, right? Yeah. So I think it's been through a bottleneck or something like that. I'm not a geneticist. I'm not going to go too deep into this. But that's something that's pretty cool as well, that basically they're all very genetically similar. And that might have something to do with the re-sprouting or coppicing as well. Maybe they've decided that, you know, sort of cloning is the way to go. Yeah. There's a lot of curious questions to ask, but it is interesting. I mean, I've definitely encountered Willemi Pine before in botanical gardens and they seem to do okay outside of this you know very specific microclimate that is the rainforest of that region 
Yeah. Which, which again, coupled with their weird reduced range, you just kind of think like, well, you know, things happen, and over long periods of time, we're lucky to even have these here. Yeah, well, I've come to kind of believe that the the Wallamai pine is where it is, not because it's it wants to be there, it's kind of because it's been reduced to being there, and mm. because it has to be there. You know, botanic gardens record growth rates of of pines all over the world. It's yet to be synthesized but they found some pretty awesome growth rates like in scotland and things like that for the well of my pine and so i'm like maybe it better be in scotland like seriously i think it's been reduced to being where it is yeah because of probably fire and drying and competition with angiosperms they've had growth rates of up to i think about 60 centimeters a year in height in some botanic gardens whereas the seedlings that we measure in the wild are growing sort of less than one centimeter a year in height so yeah. It does just fine outside of that rainforest environment for sure. Um, but the only other thing is is that maybe some of the early advertising kind of got a bit overexcited and people <laughs> it started planting them sort of beside sports ovals and things like that. And they are quite vulnerable to high temperatures and drought. And so a lot of I think maybe it was kind of first advertised as being, you know, a, another one of these hardy pines. And then a lot of people were very disappointed when their well my pine died. And so I guess I kind of say to people, don't forget it's a rainforest tree. You know, if you want it to, to do well, you know, maybe give it a bit of shelter and a bit of water. Don't put it out in the middle of a paddock, for example. Sure. But yeah, they to do pretty well um, all across the world. Yeah. I mean, there's limits to every species, right? But you know, yeah. you start talking about things like seed dispersal, seed viability, and recruitment, like you brought up earlier, which it sounds like a lot of your work has been focusing on that. Yeah. Uh, and you just, you feel like a lot, especially in the public eye, gets complicated by this concept of niche. And people try to yeah. take the niche or the niche, however you want to say it, and treat it like it's an address. We found it here, therefore this is exactly what it needs. And what it sounds like you're saying is that this is probably a species that was once more diverse, or at least had a lot of relatives that were you know, ranging a lot farther and again, just has been chased back here and, and can't seem to quite get back out of these little corners they were chased down into. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And so you look at it down in this canyon and you think even if seeds, like even the seeds that are produced, they either sort of fall down, down into the deep, dark, you know, almost 0% light in the sub canopy or if they're lucky, they might get blown up. But sort of up above these rainforests are these ridgelines, which are covered in eucalypt woodlands. Mm. And that's hot, it's dry, it's rocky, it's fire-prone. No gymnosperm um, rainforest seed is going to germinate <laughs> and survive up there. And even if it did, you know, the, the fire frequency would just be too high. So it is kind of it's it's stuck down there now. I guess that's part of the reason why, um, as part of my PhD, we looked into translocation, which is basically establishing new populations for conservation reasons outside where it is to help reduce its extinction risk. And yeah, we found that, okay, we didn't plant it too far away, we planted it far <laughs> enough, but we planted it into some area owned by a botanic garden, so, but it, it was warm temperate rainforest as well. And we found that planting it into canopy gaps or, or areas where there was a bit more light that yeah they've they've grown awesomely you know some of them have grew 30 centimeters in height in their first year and wow. yeah they do just fine so a lot of the work I've been doing recently is just monitoring the population that we planted out and so that was about six years ago and we're finding that it's doing super well we've planted out 
191 Wollamai pines and we've got about 83% survival or something like that. And, wow. and this year, big news was is that some of those ones that we planted out had actually created their own seed cones and seeds. And so that's kind of important for establishing your own population because eventually you want it to be self-sustaining to have its own babies and so you don't have to keep on uh, looking after it. And so, yeah, that was the big news this year, that they're doing well enough to be able to produce their own seed cones. So, yeah, like it definitely doesn't have to be in that single canyon system that it's in. We've um, translocated a, a little bit away. But, yeah, as we see in gardens all across the world, it's doing just fine as well. So, yeah, it's definitely definitely worth thinking about from the niche perspective, like what you said. Wow, that is so exciting and a lot to talk about there. Yeah, like you said, you don't want to see, you you plant these plants, sure they grow well, but they're not reproducing. Then you just have a garden. What you want to do is introduce individuals and see that they're actively reproducing. So all of this success in conserving ex situ, in situ, revolves around successful reproduction in a species. The parent trees have to replace themselves one way or another. So what is reproduction like in this group? Obviously, uh, you know, are you waiting around for these cones? Is it wind pollination? And then how do you go about collecting seeds in the proper way? Like, what is it? How do you go from, uh, you know, understanding reproduction to actually proper reintroducing this into other areas within its acceptable range? Oh, like, where do I start with that? (laughs) Very in the early days, when it was first discovered, part of the conservation action was to collect seeds just to get them seed banked, just as an insurance policy. And so they, there are these fantastic photos on the internet of this guy, one of the rangers, Michael Sharp, being lowered down from a helicopter to the top of the trees to collect the seed cones, you know, hanging out of a harness. Yes, he did go on to have children, I'm told, um, and then <laughs> bringing the cones back up to the helicopter so then they could be seed banked and that's how um, some of that initial seed viability work was done. But I guess another taking another step back, part of this ex situ conservation action was to get a complete ex situ population of the Wallamai pines. And that was mainly done through cuttings. So cuttings were taken from a diverse number of trees across the stand. And the Australian Botanic Garden in Mount Annan grew up an ex situ population that tried to be as representative as possible. Now, that, that ex situ population was super valuable and it still is super valuable and and they grew it and they grew it and and then they got it to a point where they had enough to be able to release some to the public so I think in the late 90s or the early 2000s there was an auction through um, Sotheby's actually and like some of the trees went for hundreds if not thousands of dollars because it was kind of like the first release of Wallamite Pines so so they had their ex situ population and they were able to get some out to the public and there was this the program was called Cultivation for Conservation. So people could have them in their gardens so there wouldn't be so much pressure on people wanting to go to the wild population and get their own, for example. Yeah. So you've got the botanic gardens with their ex situ collection that was developed from cuttings and you've got the seeds that have been seed banked there as well. And so by the time my PhD came around, um, they had enough of an ex situ collection to be able to say, all right, we can give you some plants to try and do to establish a new population in the wild with. The plants were still extremely precious. They still are extremely precious, <laughs> but they had enough to be able to say, okay, like if your translocation completely fails, it won't 
stop up the conservation of the species. So they had enough breathing room to be able to do that. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. So that's how it kind of got to the point of being able to do the translocation in 2012. And so we got these plants into the ground and it was a huge amount of work. And I guess from an experimental perspective, it was kind of interesting because I took the plants that I could get. This is a rare species, right? So I had plants from about 20 centimetres tall to about a metre and a half tall. Hmm. You don't want to think about what that did to my statistical analysis. (laughs) It hurt. But it's these bigger trees that I was able to plant out that are the ones that have been producing the cones. So in the Wollamai pine, a cone takes about two years to develop. And so at any point on a tree, you'll have this year's cone and then next year's cone because they will be developing in tandem. And so it is wind pollinated. The young trees end up with male cones first and then female cones later, but trees have both male and female cones and any cone can come in any order at any place on the plant. Uh, So we saw these female cones coming this year and then we were thinking, oh, there's, you know, there's so few trees down at the translocation site that actually have male and female cones. Maybe none of the seed inside the cone will be filled or viable. But yeah, across the translocation site this year, we got about 60 seeds that appeared to be filled. Um, And so what I actually, what I actually did, I was humming and hiring, thinking maybe I should just leave them down there and let nature take its course. But I, they were just too precious. And we also, we wanted to um, take a look, find out how many viable seeds there were. And so what I did is I just walked up to these cones. It was really lucky the timing that I went to visit the site. And you just need to to shatter them. They're ready to shatter. They kind of de-hiss and, and fall apart when they're mature. And I just shattered them into some bags and then I took them back to the botanic gardens and and that's how we got the the seed count. And right now we're doing a bit of a sort of soil seed bank experiment with those seeds that we collected. We've put them back in the soil down there and we will sort of monitor how many come up. So we are sort of still messing around doing science with them because the seeds are still really valuable. I guess a, a slight tangent is during my whole PhD, I couldn't even work with seeds because the seeds at the wild site were so valuable that they didn't give them to a PhD student. But now all those trees that were created for cultivation and sold and have been sold since about the year 2000 in people's backyards in, in, in botanic gardens, they're all starting to create their own seed cones as well sort of about 15 years later. Huh. And so now all of a sudden we've got seeds to play with and, you know, all those kind of germination questions can start to be answered in somebody else's PhD and through the <laughs> so. Yeah, so seeds up until now have been super valuable. So we've still got a lot of questions about seed germination and development and things like that. So, yeah, this year is just the first year for a seed production down at the translocation site. I suspect in coming years we will let the seeds fall and hit the ground and, and watch the germinants, the cotyledons, come up and, and see how they go. And we might we still to be determined whether we'll baby them along or to what extent we'll baby them along. But, uh, yeah, so this is the start of something. This is just, this is just the beginning, right? <laughs> yes, and it's fun to think about from, you know, getting a first-person perspective on this is just the things you can agonize about at any given moment, at any given day. I'm sure you've woken up at the middle of the night and gone like, oh, should I put a cage around this or should I go 
collect that yeah. seat, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. And at the wild site, you're just, you're not supposed to have any impact, right? So we wear soft shoes. I don't know whether you have Dunlop volleys over there, but they're these sort of like white shoes <laughs> on them. And, you know, sometimes you see like a stick that's fallen onto one of the ceilings. I think, am I, no, I should leave that there, right? Like this is nature. This is, this is how it's supposed <laughs> to be. Every single thing down there, every fern, every rock, you just try to leave exactly as it is. It's so, yeah, um, yeah, it's hard. And then with the translocation site, because we kind of made it, we can be make a few more decisions about it, but I'm really keen for it to be an ecological experiment rather than a gardening thing. Like some of the people from the Botanic Gardens were super keen to get in there, clear the ferns, <laughs> you know, like, you know, try and give the, the plants the best the best chance. And I see that, but my supervisor was kind of definitely encouraging it more, you know, this is an ecological experiment. We've, we've got to leave things be as much as we can. So, yeah, there's definitely always a, a tension between intervening and not. Yeah, that is tough, and I can really see the perspective on both sides, especially with something that has such a limited wild range and is only, like you said, just at the beginning of these sorts of ex situ conservation things. But I just, from someone who's passionate about this topic, someone that's working very closely with these organisms, and especially an organism like the Willemi pine, how did it feel to see your translocated plants actually starting to throw up reproductive structures? That must have been remarkable. Yeah, it was. I was pretty excited, but I guess I'm almost like a parent. Like a, the, the excitement very quickly turns to worry. What's next? How can we make this work? I'm super happy to, to see it going so well. And um, I wrote to my old PhD supervisor earlier in the year and, and, and told him that we still had above 80% survival. And he was like, high five. And it's it's true, but I guess because I see it so often, I'm always worrying about how it's going. And, um, yeah, like I'm, I'm a worrier, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it – it's pretty cool to see it to see it doing so well and I guess I've been going around and talking about it a bit because translocation there's been a fair bit of interest in this in, in New South Wales and in Australia for plants that are really rare as a bit of an insurance policy like we're not talking about gardening and we're not talking about putting things in botanic gardens we are talking about trying to reduce the extinction risk of things in the wild and and in the past, translocation was kind of seen as a bit too interventionist and a bit too risky. But now we have these examples of species that we that are really rare, that do really need our help and that we know really well and that maybe we can actually make a positive difference towards in this way. And so I guess I'm always proud to talk about, you know, how much thought we put into it and how much work we put into planning it and now be able to talk about that it is doing really well. But that said, I won't get ahead of myself because one of my opponents probably, well, the one that we know through tree rings how old it is, one of the fallen ones at the wild site, is 450 years old. Oh, wow. And so the, um, the, the time scales involved here are not to be sneezed at, if you know what I mean. Like this, it, this is baby steps. You know, these, these things exist on timescales 
you know, four or five times our lifetime or even more because I said as they reproduce by coppicing and, and keep on resprouting. So some of those bases at the wild site might be sort of thousands of years old. So I guess, yeah, I do like pop the party poppers, but I'm also very aware of the timescales that we're operating on. It might be quite a while before any of these seedlings do actually grow to a point where they're likely to survive at the, at the translocation site. I'm talking second generation seedlings that will grow up from seed. And, and then I guess I'll, I'll breathe a sigh of relief. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a long haul kind of thing. For sure. Certainly. Yeah. And and to be honest, I would say worrying is a good hallmark for any good conservationist. I don't want to meet the <laughs> conservationist that doesn't worry. <laughs> but you make a really good point. This isn't a garden. Again, you're not trying to just plant these out or put them in a botanical garden. All valuable parts of conservation, but in terms of ecologically sound, reintroduction, long-term survival of a species that can, like you said, live maybe four or 500, if not a thousand years or, or possibly around that range. What kind of planning goes into choosing the right site? Obviously, accessibility is an issue. You don't want these in high profile areas. You know, you got to pick something somewhat similar to their, their current situation. You don't want to go too crazy too fast. And, and just, you know, again, how do you pick the proper spot for all of this? There, there are guidelines, actually. Um, there's a couple of books that kind of, there's a book by Machinsky, and then there's also um, guidelines for threatened plant translocation in Australia. There you go. Um, it gives some pointers. But, yeah, it's covering those things that you mentioned. So the first thing is the environmental characteristics. You've got to, well, see, this, this is kind of funny considering what we talked about earlier in the co- uh, conversation. <laughs> You, we we tried to match towards the the wild side as much as possible. So you look for the same vegetation community, warm temperate rainforest, and then we looked for similar climate characteristics. And we knew um, from some of my work and some of other people's work that the Wallamai pine does not like drought and does not like high temperatures. And so we were keen to find a site that, that was climatically similar, but if possible, had a bit more rainfall and lower temperatures where possible. So, yeah, first you match up the environmental characteristics. Oh, and, and the other thing is the Wallamai pine, they love low pH soils. We're talking pH 4, oh. something like that, um, which is pretty typical in rainforests over here, um, not so typical in people's gardens. And so if your Wallamai pine is struggling, consider soil acidity. So that that was important. And then, yeah, it was about access and management. So we had to be able to get in there to do the planting and to do the monitoring, but then also sort of limit public access to some extent. And we also wanted to find a site which was kind of going to be secure in the long term. So this land, which had been bequested to the Botanic Gardens, although it was um, sort of wild native forest, um, was perfect from that perspective because they were going to have control over it in the long term. And as I said, these these things are a long-term prospect. So there was that. And then the other thing that's worth mentioning is that um, one of the key threats to the Wallamai pine is this disease pathogen called Phytophthora, which is a water mold or a root rot. Do you have that over there? Is that something that you We have, have a version of it for sure. Yeah. A little digression on Phytophthora cinnamomai. It was found out pretty early in the piece that Wallamai pine is susceptible to that. Some greenhouse trials showed that it killed seedlings within a number of weeks. 
And so, yeah, we've gone to great trouble to have a site without Phytophthora and to keep Phytophthora out. Since the wild site was discovered, one of the four, I guess you'd call them subpopulations, has been found to have Phytophthora cinnamomai in the soil nearby to it, which is which is really terrible. We don't know whether um, it was illegal bushwalkers that, that brought it in or cattle or the scientists, or maybe it was always there and just never detected. So we are pretty aware and vigilant about trying to keep Phytophthora out of the translocation site and trying uh, not to have it spread to any other part of the wild site. So, yeah, um, in terms of site selection for the translocation site, absence of Phytophthora was key. And then we also wanted to minimise the chance of it being impacted by fire. Fire is another key threat to the Wollamai pine Phytophthora fire and climate change are the three that we talk about. And so, yeah, we were trying to find a site which was relatively fire protected. And actually there was a, a big fire a couple of years ago that got within pretty close of the translocation site, yeah. but it didn't burn. Yeah, I know that was that was kind of stressful. The people at the Botanic Gardens nearby were saying to me, I'm sorry, Heidi, I think it's going to go. And I was like, that's terrible. But, hey, they might re-sprout. That would be cool. <laughs> Um, Ever the scientist. Yeah, uh, but it didn't burn, so that so that was lucky. So minimising those threats at, to try and keep the translocation site going in the long term, those were the main considerations. And yeah, having having a, a good good landholder like the Botanic Gardens to work with us, having good neighbours in the national parks, both sort of logistical and environmental considerations. Sure, yeah. And again, these decisions aren't made lightly. And even with the idea of translocating something that is rare and precious, like the Willemi pine, it's it's always met with a lot of debate and, and, you know, philosophical waxing and waning. But at the end of the day, it sounds like the future, at least for this generation, is slightly more secure than it was back in 1994. Yeah, exactly, and and I guess I'm I'm relatively positive about the the Wallamai pine because if you think about it, since it was discovered, it's now present in botanic gardens all over the world. Okay, that's gardens, not in the wild, but it now has a distribution which is much wider than it's ever been, and we've been able to do this translocation site and reduce its extinction risk in the wild as well. So this might be one of the few things that human discovery has actually kind of helped it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty positive. I'm pretty positive about that. Yeah. Getting that uh, hashtag Earth optimism in there. I mean, it's always good to hear these success stories and to hear about the people that are boots on the ground making this stuff happen. And again, to hear that none of these decisions are being made willy-nilly or haphazardly this is something that's thought about and uh you know and, and, and it's energy and time and money and effort all well spent absolutely like the the my pine is well now in new south wales we have these five iconic species through our threatened species program and the my pine is the only plant on that list and so there are a lot of good people who are putting their minds to how best to manage this. Like something that I haven't mentioned is that it's just, it, it is, I know it kind of sounds a bit kumbaya, but kind of it's all about collaboration, right? So we have what in Australia, what you call a recovery team. And that's made up of people from the universities, from national parks, from botanic gardens. We've got horticulturalists, we've got plant pathologists, you know, we've got the, the people from the government like me, everyone, you know, working their hardest, trying their best, 
to think of the best way to move forward with this species. And it, it is really cool. Like no one's trying to sort of grab the well in the pine for themselves. Everyone is trying to hmm. sort of do what's best for it. It's a really, yeah, it, it is. It's a, it's a really kind of happy story. Aww, so the plant, we've got stuff to learn about this plant and and, and it's teaching us also about how to, to be humans, you know, if we're going to continue that kumbaya feel. Yeah. <laughs> That's so yeah. cool. So in terms of you, obviously this is a, a very recent species to be discovered. There's probably so many questions to be asked. But in terms of your involvement with the Willamette Pine, where are you at? What does the future hold for, for you in particular? Uh, well, so I completed my PhD. High five. Congrats. <laughs> Got a job with the, with the government and working in the same. Um, my manager is also on the recovery team, Tony Ould. And so... Luckily, even though it's not the main part of my role, my main role is threatened species assessment, I still get to work on the, the wall of my pine. And, and next steps for the wall of my pine is thinking about where else we can do translocation. What have we learned from the ones that we've done already and how can we apply that to expanding it further? So sites that are even more potentially off the beaten track, because the one that we did is, is, is quite close, as I said, to a botanic garden, even though it is in the wild forest. So yeah, thinking about what else we can do to help reduce the extinction risk of my pine in the wild. So, yeah, we're thinking about where else we might be able to plant it and also making use of that new research into its genetics, showing the little bit of genetic diversity that it does have, trying to maximise that within the translocated populations. And, yeah, so going forward with trying to reduce this extinction risk even further that's an ongoing project when I when I'm allowed to work on it when I've got a bit of time to work <laughs> on it it's still um it's still very active and I guess I just I still get to go into the wild site when there's research to be done and I feel incredibly privileged because not many people do get to do that and I guess you know because they had me on the books for my PhD they may as well keep on sending me in there and and that you know even just going in just doing the annual monitoring is a pretty huge privilege and, and and pretty awesome just to keep keep that going keep keep an eye on that the wild site so yeah that that's me fantastic and i think i speak for everyone listening when i say keep up the good and albeit hard work <laughs> <laughs> thanks yeah yeah it is hard work but it's it's a lot of fun as well i can't deny that yeah i mean how many people can go home at the end of the day and say hey uh i'm helping save a species from the brink of extinction especially one that was only recently discovered yeah yeah not many that kind of sounds pretty cool actually right on well i i know you mentioned there's there's not much in the way of plugging to do but if people want to find your research your publications what's the best way to locate them the best way is probably just through google scholar my name's heidi zimmer and uh, just Google away, and if you want to get in touch with me, they all, as publications do, have author contact details on them, so you'll be able to find me that way. But, uh, yeah, you know, send me an email, and I'll probably respond. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right, well, Dr. Zimmer, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about this incredible species. It's been enlightening, and, again, keep up the great work. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's been fun. Cheers. All right. Excellent stuff. As always, I thank Dr. Heidi Zimmer for taking time out of her schedule to talk to us back in 2018. I will post links so you can see all of the work that she's been up to since that time. And of course, there are many more people that have a stake in the future of the species and work will always be ongoing to ensure that it will remain a living species on this planet for generations to come. 
Before I let you go, I do want to give a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Tom, Susan, and Kaylin. All of them signed up at the producer credit level over at patreon.com slash plants, so they are ensuring that Indefensive Plants has a future. I literally could not be doing this podcast without the support of all of my patrons over there. So I thank them deeply for digging into their pockets for their own slice of support each and every month. Thank you all so much. You can also support the show by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch or stickers, and all of those links can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.